you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the epistle of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 for our last sermon in this series on baptism. This week, I wanted to clear up a common misunderstanding with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many of you are probably familiar with this term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that this morning and uh, understand better what it means. Many Christians believe that water baptism and spirit baptism have little, if anything, to do with each other. And maybe your minds uh, didn't really even connect those things. We talk about spirit baptism over here and don't really even connect the water baptism at all. And, And people that believe that these are separately believe that... They should, should be separate baptisms, and they need to be separately uh, received. But what I want to show you this morning is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is actually part of Christian baptism. They, they are connected, and uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is within Christian baptism. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us explicitly that there is one baptism, not two, not three, not multiple. He says there is one baptism. He says there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Right. So his point is to show us that while there are different members looking differently, there all seems to be going a lot of uh, all, there being a lot of different moving parts going on at once. They are all part of one working system, one organ, one purpose, all going towards the same goal. One Lord has baptized them once into one single body, the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So if that's the case, then why does it seem that there is more than one baptism in the New Testament? You have spirit baptism over here and water baptism over here. Why does it look like there's multiple baptisms, especially as you go through Acts? Uh, More particularly, why does it look like there's water baptism and then spirit baptism? So we're going to hone in on these two things. Why does it look normative for these two to actually be separated when we read the scriptures? Well, what we're going to do this morning is first establish that the scriptures do, in fact, say there's one baptism. Okay. Then we're going to look at why it looks like two baptisms are normative for the Christian experience by looking through the book of Acts. And then finally, I'm going to show what the true meaning behind the spirit of the baptism or the, the, the baptism of the spirit is. That is what is happening when someone is baptized by the spirit into the body. So we're going to use 1 Corinthians 12, as I, as I said, to kind of springboard off of that. We're going to look at only two verses, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, to uh, better understand what the scriptures speak, not just Paul, not just Acts, but what does the Bible speak about when it's talking about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we've already read many of these uh, verses in this chapter, so we're just going to read these two. But think in your mind as we're reading these two scriptures in particular, uh, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Uh, 12 and 13, connect what we've just read in our congregational reading to what we're about to read here. So these are the words of God. Let's give attention to them. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we take these two verses and try to 
expound on them, better understand what they mean, and seek your will. Lord, we pray for that same inspiration of your Holy Spirit that has inspired these verses and given them to us. Lord, I pray that you would work in each and one of every one of our hearts uh, to show us by your Spirit what the baptism of the Spirit is. Give us clarity about the things that we're looking at. And most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus and his purposes behind baptism for us and even in this church and practically in our own lives, how this affects us today. Lord, I pray that my words would be honoring to you, that my my lips would give glory to your name. And if anything that I say that is not of your word, I pray that, as always, it would go in one ear and right out the other. Lord, we want the pure gospel this morning, and we want your spirit to apply it. So be with me and be with all of us as we open up your scriptures this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one baptism. Let's establish this first before we look at the uh, different variants uh, throughout Acts as it looks like there are uh, multiple baptisms. Let's establish first that there is, in fact, one baptism by going to our text, verses 12 and 13. 12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So let's break these verses down and just think about it a little bit more. Paul starts here with this analogy of the human body, doesn't he? He's talking about the human body. He says, think about this. You have a body, right? It has many members. So think about that. You have lots of organs that are functioning together. You have fingers. You have toes. You have eyes, noses. It all comes together, and it's still one body. And Paul says, okay, you've established that. And he says, so it is with Christ. So it is with the body of Christ. And the implication here is that the church, right, that's all of us, uh, with all its members all doing different things, are still part of the one body of Christ. And Christ is one, so they are corporately one people, right? He, he's saying that. That's very simple, right? All right? We're all one body. We have different members. The question is, is how? How are all the different parts that are doing seemingly different things part of this one body? What makes a member part of the one body of Christ? How can different people that are doing different things still be considered part of that uh, same thing? What is the unifying principle? Maybe we could think of it like that. What's that unifying principle that brings all these together to make it one? Before we answer this, let's go back to Paul's analogy of the body. Right? He's using this so that we can think deeply about this and about the church. How can all of your different parts of your body still be considered you? Right? How can your finger and your toe and your nose, who are all doing very different things, how can that all be considered you? What makes it you? Well, it's connected, right? That seems very simple, but think about it. it what, what makes it uh, you is the, the fact that it is connected and in and a part of that same system. It's part of you. But think about this. What happens if you lose a finger um, and you get a donor finger? Think about that. So your finger's chopped off. It's it's dead. It's not a part of you. And then you need a donor finger. What do they do then? Well, then they graft a new finger in if they can. If you can find someone who's uh, had a they're an organ donor or whatever it is, uh, they they might actually be able to get a new finger and graft it into you. And then it becomes you. It's part of your body physically because it's physically connected to you. And uh, Paul uses the same language of grafting in other places, doesn't he? He talks about Christ being the vine, some being cut off, some being grafted in. He uses the same kind of thinking about the body of Christ. Uh, and Paul says it's the same with Christ. So how do you as an individual member get grafted into the body of Christ spiritually as the church? How does that work? Well, verse 13 answers this. 
Verse 13 says this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So in one spirit, you were all baptized into one body. So Paul says the answer to this question, how do we get incorporated into the body of Christ? He says it's by baptism through the spirit. Okay, doesn't matter what member you are. You are connected to the body through baptism of the spirit. It is that that connects you in. It's not a physical connection. Right. He's he's saying, look at the body for an analogy, but it's actually a spiritual reality that he's talking about here. It's a spiritual connection that grafts you into the one body of Christ. Uh, And that's that's what Paul is saying happens through baptism. Baptism puts you into the body of Christ through baptism. He says we were all made to drink of the one spirit. That happens in baptism. So just as the physical body uh, member becomes part of you through physical connection, you sew it on, right? Um, and it's nourished by your physical blood, right? So that, that member from outside becomes part of you once you sew it in. So you become a spiritual member uh, of Christ's body through the Spirit's work in baptism, right? When you're baptism, that should be taking place. Now, if I could take this analogy just one step further to make even some more sense of it, because you might be saying, well, what about the cutoff part? How do we think about those? Now, suppose a toe is grafted onto a body, right? Or whatever you want to say, a finger, toe, uh, whatever it is. Suppose a toe is grafted onto the body and the body rejects it because it's incompatible, right? There's different blood types. There's incompatibilities that people have with other people. And when that's grafted in and it doesn't work, what happens then? It gets infected. And then when it gets infected, what do you typically do? You cut it off. Right? You, you have to cut off that toe or that other member because if you don't, then it sickens the whole body. Right? It's infected, and it will cause a bigger problem if you don't cut it off. And this is the reality that uh, I've, been, I've been speaking of in baptism. We might be tempted to say that baptism only places us truly in the church if we believe. Think about that. It's, it, we might be tempted to say well, you're only really in the church if you're a true believer. But that's not what Paul says. He says if you're in, right, if you're baptized, you are in. We were all baptized into one body, and we all drink of the same spirit. So if you're baptized, you are objectively in the church. right? We need to realize that baptism is an objective sign. It's not subjective whether or not you believe. It's an objective sign and seal that you are actually in the body, the church. Now, if you are baptized, you are truly a member of the body of Christ whether or not you believe. But it is your belief or unbelief that determines whether or not you stay. Think about that. Romans 11. Paul talks about some being cut off. Why are they cut off? Unbelief. Well, If they were on and then they're cut off, that implies that they were in at some point and they were in by something, right? So you can be in the church and not a believer and cut off, right? But your belief may be what removes you just like a body might need an infected toe removed, right? We're still going with this analogy of the body. Uh, This is the duty of the church to keep its health. If you you have a member that joins the church and they're an incompatible member with the church, they're not living up to their baptismal calls. They're not living uh, with the the flow of the vine, if you want to think of it that way. Their juices don't mix the juices of the church. That member needs to be cut off. And if you don't, what is going to happen? It's going to sicken the church. That's, that's the need for excommunication. If you don't remove the infected toe, it will infect the whole church. right? And we know these people, and we've seen the situation right, where people just kind of passively let it go. The person's sick, and they need help. They need aid, and no one reaches out to them, and it ends up infecting everyone. right? 
Okay, so that's that's the analogy. This is the need for biblical church discipline. And that is why in other places, speaking uh, on the oneness of faith in our baptism, uh, he says things like this. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. Right. It's urgent. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Think about that calling in Acts 2 where Peter talks about any, everyone who the Lord calls to himself in baptism. To the walk worthy to the calling which you've been called, he said in Ephesians 4. In all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let me say that again. The unity of the Spirit in one bond of peace. There is one body. One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So church, how many baptisms are there? There is one baptism that is all working together in this big picture, this big organ of the church by the spirit unto the one Lord. Right? It's one big picture doing one big thing. One, baptize, one baptism to unite you to the one Lord by the one spirit's work. And just as the spirit descended and rested on Jesus in baptism, so scripture says that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body and all made to drink of that one spirit. Right? We get what Jesus gets in his baptism. This is why Peter's baptismal call uh, at Pentecost said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will. You will, not might, not maybe, later down the road. He says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is Peter's baptismal call. Be baptized, and you're going to get the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? So now that we've established that there's one baptism, that's what Ephesians says, that's what 1 Corinthians says, that's what Peter's saying, there's one baptism. Let's look at why it looks like there's two baptisms. Because if you read through Acts, it actually does kind of look like that. It becomes a bit confusing, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, it, it is complicated, it is difficult, but it's not too difficult that we can understand. Paul gives us the scriptures so that we can better understand uh, what is given to us. So if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to look through a large portion of Acts, uh, looking at many scriptures this morning. I'm going to walk you through why it looks like there are multiple baptisms going on, uh, because it's Acts that we find that this confusing phenomena pops up, where there's baptized individuals, water-baptized individuals, that are then later receiving the Holy Spirit at a separate moment in time. So allow me to explain uh, why this happens. So let's start here. If you remember, through this series and some of the other series, even in John, I've repeated, uh, repeatedly mentioned the biblical distinction between John's baptism and Christian baptism. They are not the same. They're two different things. John baptizes with water, uh, and, but Jesus is going to come, and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he even leans into this contrast uh, that they are not the same. So Jesus arrives, and he's baptized by John with the Spirit and the Holy Spirit descends on him, and the two are one, right? Water baptism and spirit baptism happen first there in Jesus, and Jesus' baptism is truly the first Christian baptism where the full package happened all at once, right? With baptism of the Holy Spirit and water right then and there, okay? And you may also remember, though, that Jesus baptized no one. Right, so his disciples were going around baptizing people. John was going around baptizing people, but Jesus did not baptize people. Okay, so think about this. Now, what baptism do you suppose that those disciples of Jesus were baptizing into? 
Think about that. His, his disciples are baptizing. Jesus isn't baptizing, but his disciples are baptizing. Are they baptizing into John's baptism or Christian baptism? Now, it's, it's a rhetorical question because it's difficult. It's not an obvious answer. It's a little bit complicated, and I want you to think about that. What is going on here? Well, we have baptisms that are happening, but only Jesus has had this first Christian baptism, but they didn't receive that Christian baptism. So which baptism are they baptizing in? And this is actually something that many people miss. The disciples actually continued on in the Old Covenant, uh, baptizing with John until the New Covenant came in full. They're still baptizing in the old covenant order, the old kingdom. Uh, And since they hadn't been baptized by Jesus, because Jesus baptized no one, since they hadn't been baptized by Jesus, the only one who has this full Christian baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit with water baptism, they couldn't pass on that spirit-empowered baptism. Think about that. Jesus is the only one that could pass on that spirit-empowered baptism. The disciples couldn't because they didn't have it themselves. They didn't have that water baptism and spirit baptism. It wasn't one. So they were baptizing for repentance and preparation like John. They weren't baptizing in this new full sense of Christian baptism. And this is why Jesus says that unless he goes, the comforter can't come. He, he repeatedly emphasizes this, that there has to be some kind of action where Jesus ascends and the Spirit descends. And that hadn't happened yet until Jesus' ascension. Okay, So jump forward to uh, right after his resurrection, before his ascension in Acts 1. We're going we're gonna to walk through this. This is where the promise goes forth into to all the world. It says in Acts 1, 4 through 5, this. And while staying with them, that's Jesus... He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, so he says, stay here, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, see the contrast, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Think about that. So wait for the promise. Why? Because you don't have it yet. You don't have the promise. You haven't taken, uh, you haven't had the full baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, given to you yet. So you can't offer it to anyone else. Okay, let's jump down to verse 8. Verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Catch this pattern. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When it comes, they will receive the power, it says. And then they're going to take that power, and then they're going to distribute it, starting in Jerusalem, and then the greater region of Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's the plan. That's what Jesus says is going to happen. And right as he was saying this, what happened? He ascended and went up. And then what is the next thing that they should have been expecting? That the Spirit would come, right? That the Spirit would come and descend on them. Okay, let's keep reading. Acts 2, Acts 2, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that's the same people, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven like a sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I want you to notice something. Notice that the Spirit rested on them just like it rested on someone else. Do you remember what happened in Jesus' baptism, what it says? The Spirit came down like a dove and it rested on him. Right? So they're receiving the very thing that Jesus received in his baptism. 
Okay. Now, notice also verse five, it says where this took place. It was in Jerusalem. So now they've not only had water baptism by John, but they've had the full baptism of the Holy Spirit. They now have the full package. And since they now have the full package, they're able to pass this on. And we're going to see this happens. This is really what the story of Acts is all about. Okay, jump down with me to verse 37, chapter 2, verse 37. We looked at this last week, but we'll look again. Peter's just preached this gospel sermon about Jesus and how the promise of the Holy Spirit would come. And he says this in uh, verse 37. It says, Now, when they heard this, the onlookers that is, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Catch this. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. There's that calling, right? That calling to baptism. So now the disciples have officially taken the first step ordained by Jesus to take the gospel out, to take the the Holy Spirit empowerment of the kingdom of God out. They started in Jerusalem themselves. Then they passed the baptism on to the onlookers. And now they have the full Christian baptism that Peter specifically says is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, you're going to receive this. We're going to baptize you and you're going to get the full package. So the kingdom of God has now officially moved from beyond just the person of Jesus to now the disciples and now the Jews who are united to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. They are now one people, right? Jesus, the disciples, and the Jews. They are the people of God now. Now, think about this. What about the other peoples, right? The Jews are there. That's great. What about the other people? What about some of the other like half-tribe Groups. What about the Samaritans who are kind of like half-Jews who say, yeah, we worship the same God, but we do it in different ways. We don't do circumcision. You do circumcision. Circumcision is that one really big part of, of the faith for you guys. You say that's the entrance into it, uh, into, the, into the faith. We don't really do that. What about us? Where do we fall in all of this? Is, is, the, gospel of the, prom- is the promise of the Holy Spirit just for the Jews? Now, we get an answer to this, right? It, it tells us through the book of Acts that it's actually not. We know the circumcised have now respe- received the spirit in baptism, but what about the halfway communities? Right? They need it too. They are in need just like we are in need is what they are saying. Uh, so this also uh, includes the full members of the household – or could this also include full members of the household of faith that aren't Jews? Right? Let's see. Acts 8. Keep going with me. I know. It's a lot of verses. Acts 8, verses 14 through 17. Starting in verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, so there's Samaria, they sent to them Peter and John, apostles, uh, verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All right. 
So now we aren't told who baptized these Samaritan believers, uh, but the baptism that they received obviously wasn't the full Christian baptism that had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was probably the disciples who were continuing to baptize in John's ministry saying, yes, we're com- here's Jesus. He's, he's the one that we're coming to. But they didn't have the full spirit empowerment that uh, Jesus gave at the first Pentecost. So here we see kind of another mini Pentecost where the ba- water baptized individuals receive a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this is... Pentecost 2.0, right? This is the next Pentecost moving not just from the Jews in Jerusalem, but now to Samaria. And notice the pattern, right? They started in Jerusalem, just like Jesus said. You'll be my witnesses starting here, then Samaria. And now let's keep keep following the pattern. Jesus says it's going to go to other places in Judea. Okay, Acts 10. Acts 10, verses 44 through 48 says this. While Peter, again, one of the apostles, was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Now, this takes place in Caesarea. You know where Caesarea is. It's the capital of Judea. So here again, Jesus was right. He he had a plan, and this is what the apostles are doing. They're following Jesus' plan to be witnesses to all the earth. So yet again, we have another Pentecostal event where the promise of the Holy Spirit comes at a separate event than water baptism. And they're starting to kind of sync up. Okay, So what's going on so so far? Why are we going through all these passages? Well, the promise has moved from Jesus to his Jewish disciples— Right to the Jews in Jerusalem, to the half-Jews in Samaria, and now even the God-fearer Gentiles in Judea. And it's not over yet. We're still going. Acts 19, I promise this is the last place in Acts. <laughs> Acts 19, verses 1 through 6. And it happened that while, while Paul, Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland countries and came to Ephesus. There he found some, some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, And to then what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized, catch this, now Paul's again leaning into the, uh, the contrast between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism, the full Christian baptism. He says, And Paul said, John baptized with the Spirit, or sorry, and back up. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they, were, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, this takes place in Ephesus, which would certainly fit the ends of the earth description. This is a thoroughly Gentile uh, people that they have went to. And Jesus tells his disciples to go be witnesses even to these people. These people even in the Netherlands, the, the way, way out, the Gentiles who we would never imagine. These, these people are worshiping all kinds of idols. It's even going to these people. And uh, Paul is ready and happy to take the gospel to these people. So at this point, the gospel has reached all the people groups that Jesus said. 
This is really what the, the book of Acts is all about. How Jesus said, go and be witnesses in these places to the Jews in Jerusalem, to the Samaritans in Samaria, the God-fears in Judea, the Gentiles in the ends of the earth. Right? These concentric circles that kind of get bigger and bigger, starting with Jesus into the ends of the earth. This is the gospel plan to take the Holy Spirit into all the world. Now, I took you through those events to show you two things. First, I wanted you to see that Acts 2 isn't the only Pentecostal event that happened in Acts. Right? We often think of Acts 2 as the big one where the Holy Spirit came. But notice how we just looked at four of those. Right? That came at many different times. There's this outpouring of the Spirit, but it happens at four times on four major people groups, on all the different people groups. And it followed the biblical pattern of Jew first, then the Greek. Right? This is how the gospel goes out. So that was the first reason. I wanted you to see that, that Acts 2 is distinctive because that's where it started, but it's not unique, and that's the only place that the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came on all these different people groups, just like the gospel said it would. Now, secondly, I wanted to explain why this outpouring of the, hap- uh, of the Holy Spirit happened at separate times than water baptism. That's the real question here, isn't it? Why is it not at the same time? If, if I'm saying there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, why aren't these in the one place in the one baptism? Okay, Spirit baptism and water baptism are separate here simply because the Spirit hadn't come yet in its full sense. Right? It started somewhere. It didn't come all at once. It had to grow out. And how does Jesus say that it grows out? Like a mustard seed, really small, almost like one person. Like, think about that. Jesus is where it all started, and it started to grow out and get bigger and bigger from there. So he said it hadn't come in this – we see it hasn't come in the full sense. If it had, Jesus wouldn't have told his disciples to sit and wait. But he does. He says, I want you to wait. I don't want you to go out. You would think that that would be what Jesus says. I want you to go out. Now that you've heard the gospel, go out. And he says, no. I want you to wait until something comes. And they did wait, and then the Spirit came, and it would equip the people of God. So that is what happened. They did need to wait because they needed to be equipped with the Spirit to sync up all of these people who'd been baptized in the old order of John and the disciples of Jesus. Right? It was their mission to actually reach these people. Now recall, John was the greatest of the old covenant. Right? We've went over and over this. John was the greatest of the old covenant, but Jesus brings the new covenant, and even the least in the new covenant is greater than John. So Acts essentially recounts the syncing up of the event between water baptism and spirit baptism. Right? They needed to be synced up to where they could be one. Notice uh, that outside of Acts, you don't really see this separation of water baptism and spirit baptism. These, these are uh, only really happening in Acts in this 40-year period that's very unique where the Spirit is being poured out on all the different people. Right? It's not, not, it is not now normative for you to see this. It's not now normative to see a, a water baptism and then a spirit baptism in a later place. It should be taking place all at once in one full package. There are no more people baptized into John. Think about that. You don't see this because there aren't any more disciples of John anymore. John is dead and gone. He's been long dead and gone for a long time. Why? Well, time, one. But also his ministry has been done for a long time because the old covenant has been closed. And the new covenant has come in full. The new covenant is fully here. And the old covenant has fully passed away. Now, what most people don't realize is that uh, when the new came and the old passed away, there was kind of this overlapping period, right? It wasn't a hard break. Most people think of the old covenant here and the new covenant here, and there's this line where we were all of a sudden, all at once, the full new covenant. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. 
There's this period where John is going up to this point, and Jesus actually starts while John is still there. So there's this overlapping period where the old is coming to an end. Uh, Paul even uses this language of it's passing away. The old things are passing away, and the new are coming. Right, this is exactly what he's talking about, where the new coming, uh, or the, the new covenant is coming in full. And there's this overlapping period, this extremely unique uh, section of history that we see played out in Acts. That is what is happening, where there's spirit baptism and water baptism happening at separate events. It was in this overlapping, unique period of time. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's why you see it broken apart in Acts, because there needed to be this moment to where the gospel fully went out, the, the new covenant has fully come, all the disciples have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're all empowered, and now we go forward and we give it all at once. Right? We baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You get the full package just like Jesus got the full package. Okay, So how does baptism of the Holy Spirit then fit into Christian baptism, into water baptism? How is it all one? Well, at its fundamental meeting, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has to do with the empowering of individuals to engage in Christian ministry as a unified force. We're all together, right? It's empowering us to do what we are called to do. Jesus calls us to do some things, and those some things he gives us the power to do. We said in our first uh, installment of this series uh, that baptism engages us to be the Lord's. We're engaged in his kingdom. And we might say, well, how do we do that? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? You are given the means to do what you are called in your baptism. God promises to do those very things. So its purpose is to unify the individual members, all those people that look different, unify these individual members to engage in one Christian ministry as one unified force into one synchronized body, right? Your eyes and your feet do different things, but they are still part of one body. Right? They are still connected into that one body. And this is the body of Christ. This is how it works. You all have different gifts, different uh, things that the Lord has given to you to be a part and a force and working in that one body. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that the church actually becomes one unified body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet laboring in his kingdom by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is absolutely crucial to understanding Christian baptism because the whole purpose behind the baptism of the Spirit is to keep us a complementary system that doesn't have different tiers. Think about that. Paul's whole force behind all those letters is don't think you're better than someone else. Don't start to put this tier where you're of Apollos, you're of a Paul, I'm of Jesus Christ. Right? He talks about the super apostles, and he starts to like even poke fun at them. So he's, he's like, don't do that, guys. That's not what Christian ministry is about. That's not what you're called to in your calling. You need to walk as a, a, one worthy of what you've been called to, not thinking of yourself as higher than anyone else. That's the whole point behind the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's precisely what Paul harps on most in his most famous uh, spiritual gifts passages. Right? Everyone wants to go to the spiritual gift passages and say, look what Paul, he's, he's affirming it, he's saying it's here. Yes, it is there, but his whole point is you're doing it wrong. You're puffed up. You're disunified. You don't get the point. You're all doing your different things, but you're not realizing that there should be one big mission, and you should all be together, and there's not different tiers and different structures where you're way up here and you're way down here, and you need to be a real Christian like this. No. Paul says, no, no, no. You guys are missing the point. You're not realizing that we are all one body. We are all working together. But unfortunately, some communions have taken Pentecost to mean that there are basic Christians and then there's spirit-filled Christians. Right? They've actually uh, taken this, uh, this thinking and 
flip Pentecost upside down. Pentecost is supposed to mean everyone's included. Everyone's in. We're all on the same plane. And they say, actually, no. No, no, no. That actually means there's basic Christians that have been baptized. And then there's the spirit-filled ones, the real Christians, the one who are really, really passionate for the Lord. They have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism of the Spirit keeps the eye from thinking that he's any higher uh, than the foot. That's actually what the baptism of the Spirit does. So they need to lean into more of the, the, the real meaning of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because the moment you start to get puffed up, you're missing the whole point. You don't understand baptism uh, in any sense, really, not just the baptism of the Spirit. You're missing the whole point of water baptism. If you think speaking in tongues elevates you to some higher spirituality, then you've completely missed the whole significance of Pentecost. Think about that. You're missing it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is normal Christian baptism. You get the full package right then and there. We're all made to drink of one Spirit. You got the full package. You just need to lean into it. Don't get puffed up. That's Paul's message behind all this one baptism stuff, right? Tongues, if we want to think about tongues, we'll go there. Tongues were given uh, as a sign to signal that the kingdom of God has come and it's united the people of God under one unified kingdom-building purpose. We're going to build the kingdom of God. We're going to do it together. Now, why was it a sign? What, what was it revealing? Well, it was a sign because it showed the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Think back to Genesis 11. Where God said, if, if I don't confuse their tongues, there's nothing that's going to be able to stop them. So that's what Babel was, this really confusing moment where all these people have been united, and they're united to get together in one force, one purpose, and they're united in their own name, not the name of Jesus. They're, you're, they're united in the wrong purpose, and what does God do? He says, I can't have this, because if I let them continue on, no one will be able to stop them. So what does he do? He confuses their language. For they're all speaking different tongues. No one knows what's going on. It's a really confusing event, right? So whereas tongues at Babel confused the languages, at Pentecost, each heard the mighty works of God in his own tongue. This is what we miss so often. The tongues were actually a moment where uh, one person was saying one thing, and people in different languages still understood it. Right? They, it made sense of them. They all heard the gospel, even though they were uh, Gentiles, even though they were Samaritans, even though they were people from different languages. They were from all the different nations gathered in Jerusalem. And at first they thought, well, these people are drunk. And then they're like, wait, I can understand him. This makes sense. I understand the gospel message through the power of the Holy Spirit coming in tongues. In other words, they heard the good news of the kingdom of God, not as confusing Babel, but as this one unified new language, right? This unified purpose of the Holy Spirit that makes sense. This is what the new covenant brings. So these Pentecostal events and acts, all four of them, all of these, actually signal God's reversal of this curse into a new unified spirit-building kingdom of God. Where they're all coming together as one. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God says the same thing about the church as he does the people of Babel. Right? Nothing is going to be able to stop these people. When I, when I unify them, they, when I bring back their languages, he says the very same thing about Babel. Right? In Babel, he says, if I don't confuse their languages, then no one can stop one. No one's going to be able to stop them. But in the, the church, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and, and Pentecost... God does the reverse of that. He says, I'm going to actually unify all these people together, all these different languages. The Jews, the Gentiles, the Samaritan, all these people, they're actually going to come and they're going to rebuild something. It's not going to be a kingdom of man. 
It's going to be a kingdom of God. We're going to build a new city. We're going to build a new people. We are now the people of God, and it doesn't just include Jews. It includes all kinds of people. So allow me once again to return uh, with my, my whole purpose in preaching this message in our passage today in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Now the amazing thing about this passage is that you and I get to be a part of that one baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't just preach all of this to you to show you, oh, here's the biblical distinctions. Now you know. Good for you. I want you to realize you are included. We forget that we're the Gentiles. We're the ends of the earth. We're the way off people. We're a long way from Jerusalem, church. And, and sometimes we can even think, and there's different Christian communities that start to think, well, the Jews are the chosen people of God. We're just lowly Gentiles. That's not what the baptism of the Holy Spirit says. It says we're all together. We are one. We all, through Christ, have been brought together by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's placed us in the same place as every other person that is chosen by God. We are all in the same place. We've all been given the same spirit. We've all been clothed in Christ. We've all put on Christ. We are all given the same thing so that no one should think that I'm taller than someone else. Right? That you're up here and you're down here. None of that, right? In Christian baptism, when you are baptized into Christ, guess how tall you are? Exactly as tall as Christ is. You, you are in Christ, and when you are in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a foot. It doesn't matter if you're a hair. You are as tall as Christ is, and who wants to be taller than that? Who wants to be greater than God, right? That's not what we want. We want to be like God. That's our goal, and that's the whole goal of Christian baptism, that we are united to Christ. We are united to God in baptism. It's good news. It is good news. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen? Let's pray.